Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. The Power of Film, supported by Platinum patrons Pip Muir and Kit Toogood. In the gladiatorial arena of film direction, where women have often been treated as invisible, New Zealand auteur Jane Campion has blazed a pioneering trail. The first woman to win the Palme d'Or for the piano and the second to ever be nominated for a directing Oscar, Campion's latest triumph is The Power of the Dog, inspired by Thomas Savage's 1967 novel of the same name. Winning her a legion of awards, including a Venice Silver Lion, a Golden Globe, a BAFTA, an Academy Award and a Critics' Choice Award, it's a powerful exploration of toxic masculinity and of love, grief and sexuality, all themes that she has explored in a potent body of work that also includes Sweetie, Holy Smoke, An Angel at My Table, Top of the Lake, Bright Star and In the Cut. Returning home, she joins Noelle McCarthy in conversation to discuss her artistic inheritances, guiding principles and preoccupations. Ena mana, ena reo, ena iwi, tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Noel McCarthy, toko ingoa, tēnā koutou katoa. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our session, The Power of Film. If you could please turn your phones on to silent, and please don't take any photos or videos with a flash while we're talking. They probably won't win any Oscars anyway, so don't bother. Um, our session is brought to you tonight thanks to the generous support of Festival Platinum patrons Pip Muir and Kit Tugud, Namihi Nui Kiyokoto. Our guest this evening is a world-renowned artist, an effortless communicator, and as her longtime collaborator, the actor Holly Hunter calls her, a bit of a gunslinger. She said once she never intended to be a director, but the story she was writing needed telling. So she got behind the camera, and the rest is history. The first woman to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes, she shared it for the piano. The first, and still the only, 30 years on, they still haven't found another woman to give it to. Two Oscars, one for screenwriting, one for directing. And this year, with her second directing nomination for the power, or sorry, win, and nomination for The Power of the Dog, she became the first woman to get two nods for Best Director. And yeah, again, the first also means the only. She writes films and television series that are tender and violent, romantic and brutal, enlivened by mischief, hot with sex, alive to nature, brimming with the power of suggestion and potent ambiguities, full of images so strange and so beautiful, you can't be sure you didn't dream them. A piano left alone on an endless black sand beach, the waves lapping it. A young girl wading out into an icy lake, a man in a clearing 
caressing himself with a silk scarf, privately, delicately. To talk about her career in writing and filmmaking, please join me in welcoming once more to the Auckland Writers' Festival one of the world's most lauded directors, Dame Jane Campion from Wellington. So I should say how this will work. We won't have questions, but people can come and see you at the signing table afterwards because you'll be signing copies of Michel Simon's book, Jane Campion on Jane Campion. So we will have the best part of an hour to go back a bit, hopefully, through your career to your beginnings as a director and a writer mm -hmm. and talk through some of the highlights. But I want to start with the most recent, you know, belated congratulations for the power of the dog. As it's otherwise known, the power of Central Otago. <laughs> you won Best Director of the Oscars in April. Were you surprised by the enthusiasm people had for this film? I mean, who knew a film about toxic masculinity would connect like this in the era of Donald Trump? I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, not sure, Noel. <laughs> You're teasing me or you're being serious, but um, <laughs> um, you know, it's really hard to know where the films are going to connect in a um, larger way yeah. or not. Uh, in the end, for me, I fall in love with something like, in this case, I fell in love with Thomas Savage's book. Uh, so I'm just guessing other people might as well, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I don't know, like, the numbers of it. I mean, I felt like it was a, a pretty tricky customer yeah. in, in many ways. Um, but, you know, that's the sort of thing I handle well, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on paper, you yeah. know, this story of a misogynist gay cowboy mm. who's haunted by the ghost <laughs> of his, you know, dead lover while he's sort of terrorizing Mental, his yeah. his mm. brother's his brother's bride in 1920s Montana you know on paper it doesn't look like an immediate crowd pleaser <laughs> <laughs> I, I was counting on Peter's charms <laughs> <laughs> and and you know I think um, you know his capacity with a flower making out of paper all these mm. sorts of things that you know, there's so many details that for me uh, we're winning, and um, yeah, I mean, in the themes, the rope making, um, the way the rope played a role, I, I just felt it was something that that I could manage well, and it was that was even a question for me, you know, because as a, um, a straight woman telling a story of, of a um, closeted gay man, you sort of wonder, you know, in this day and age, you know, who's the right person to tell the story? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not American, I'm not from Montana, I don't know that world. Um, I uh, have been seen on a um, saddle on a ladder with, <laughs> with a pillowcase on my head and dark glasses, but, um, and, you know, I, I do ride horses and everything, but it, it did, it's one of those things that do bother you did bother me, um, like the ownership of it. And, you know, when I'd asked myself that question, I thought, well, you know, I, I do really love the story, so that's part of the way, and I think I could do a good job. 
but it did press me to go to Montana and to uh, meet the relatives I could find of Thomas Savage, um, his biographer, and also Annie Prue, who wrote the afterward. I don't know if any of you actually read the book as well. It's so amazing. Mm. But um, Annie Prue lives um, Port Townsend on an island off Seattle, and um, that was such a great journey. And, and to be with Annie Prue, who agreed to meet us, uh, me and my friend Tanya Sagechi, and, and to talk about the novel with her, you know, it was a, a masterclass you can't repeat. It was just the most amazing uh, lunch, and she made us these giant claws. And everything about Annie is sort of, she's like this giant, tall woman who's so strong and yet really tender and shy. And I remember teasing her and saying, Oh, Annie, you know, like we were talking about something or other, and saying, oh, I think you're romantic, really. And she said, oh, it takes one to know one. <laughs> yeah. <And laughs> it's too shy, but yeah. It is the tenderness in the power of the dog that, mm. you know, that broke my heart, that, yeah. that brought me to a sense of, you know, a sense of empathy for Phil yeah. by the end. And, and that feels to me to be a very Jane Campion thing because, you know, you write villainy with such mm. gusto and such, you know, I'm thinking about Stuart in The Piano, who's just terrible, or Al in Top of the Lake, you know, who's just this awful person who I really fancied at different moments <laughs> in the series. And he has this wonderful speech, you know, to yes. Elizabeth Moss's character where he says, I'll give you, I'll give you whatever, you can have whatever you want. You know, you, you force this empathy in us for, you know, for people who don't, again, on paper necessarily, you know, look like they will inspire it. Mm. Well, I mean, Phil is a difficult character, that's for sure, but um, I'm taken by his um, thing that I, I guess redeems him for me is that he's a lover and that he has a burning heart, really, you know, for Bronco Henry in the first place, you know, how he memorializes him and remembers him and honors him. And um, the to love, I guess, or we begin to feel he feels for Peter. Mm. Um, which, you know, like when he shows his hand as a lover, it's, it's the, it's how he is, um, you know, also murdered by uh, Peter. Well, he shows it's, his hand, you yeah. know, he literally shows his hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is so much that is done with, you know, um, Benedict Cumberbatch's performance of Phil, mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, going from from the script. So much that is internal, and so much that is ambiguous. You mm. know, th that feels to me like a big difference between the, your work and the novel. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk a bit about ad adaptation? Because I feel that it's something that when it's done really well, you don't necessarily get a lot of credit for doing it really well. You know, it just, it just works. Yeah. Um, well, with adaptation, it's, um, I think, trickier than you imagine, you know, like, and I, I was cautious when it came to doing the adaptation for this book. 
So we were just talking backstage about the fact that the um, book had been optioned five times uh, previously, um, but never made. And um, Roger Frappier, who actually owned the rights, um, had attempted one of those um, screenwriting efforts and said it was terrible. Um, so, you know, I was cautious, like, okay, this is going to be maybe a challenge. Maybe there's things I don't see that aren't obvious about how difficult this book is going to be. And I think there's some pretty obvious ones because, you know, a lot of uh, Thomas Savage describes um, Phil's in a world. Yes very much during the storytelling, um, plus there's a lot of backstory that, you know, I was decided to chuck mm. and um, just deal with the linear story going forward. Um, and, of course, Bronco Henry, you know, we're dealing with a, a character that is a ghost. Yes. And um, in, this, in the book, they can talk about that very easily, but somehow I had to find ways of... Um, making him visible in the film and I was really scratching my head, you know, to come up with ideas and I think I felt better once I came up with the idea of the shrine, yeah. um, which didn't exist in the book, um, in the barn where he keeps his saddle and, you know, basically, a, a, you know, a special place for Bronco Henry's spurs and with little love hearts on them and, um, yeah and with a plaque to Bronco, you know, friend. Um, and then also the invention of the, the silk scarf with BH on it. Um, so, you know, just armed um, with those two things. And also, like, I invented a little um, story. I mean, there was a, a less romantic or, you know, like a good story about Bronco that he tells um, in the restaurant and um, one of the producers suggested to me I came up with a better one. So <laughs> I, I tried to do that, um, you know, about of the Bronco Henry's together. horsemanship. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, it's, you know, Phil always loves to hear anyone talking about Bronco Henry, and all the cowhands know that, and they love to sort of please him by, you know, using those words Bronco Henry in, in any moment, you know. Mm. But I tried not to get. Phil to bring that up to himself, but just let the others do it. Um, yeah, so that was the, those were the sort of difficulties. And also I think, you know, it, this, this, the shape of it is like a figure of eight, and um, Tanya Segechian, who's absolutely darling, great friend, but also really talented um, producer, and ha worked on um, the Crown on the first series uh, with the writer Peter, I can't remember his name. Peter now. Morgan. Yeah, Peter Morgan. Um, worked personally with him to do that, um, to, to figure out how to yeah. structure that um, first series. And she's so clever and it's just amazingly helpful to have another brain sorting it out. And I remember we worked it out on her kitchen table. She, we were going to do it in New Zealand, but her mum. Um, had a heart attack, so uh, I went over to England instead, and her kitchen table was, you know, from here to over there, and we just put post-its, you know, for every beat of, this, of the yes. film, well, not actually all of them, but, you know, for, them, for all the totems of the film, all the signifiers, any object that we thought was important, the, all the characters and, you know, the, the axe. I don't really know about axe or anything, but, you know, the shapes of the story, like when one part of the story, the second part of the story, third, fourth. 
-hmm. And um, we tried to, I tried to shape it out as much as possible because the story is very clever. Yes, and, and it doesn't it have the same sort of logistical challenges that you must have had. You mm. know, it just tells you on the last page yes. what happened. Yes. Whereas your job as, as a filmmaker uh, is to seed that yes. knowledge visually, yeah. you know, from, and it's there from the start, isn't it? The cows, the cows. <laughs> well, I mean, all I can hang on to is my first reading of the book and how I didn't see it coming. Because once you know it's coming, it's, mm. you know, never unsee it. But, you know, anyway, I, I just had to trust that that would kind of be the case. But I do really lean on other people to help me a lot um, and to check. Because one of the really difficult things about writing is that um, you can, I can personally can only read my own um, script from start to finish twice, say. Mm. And then I really... Um, just make up delusions about it, or actually sort of either I think it's amazing or I feel like <laughs> being sick or, you know. Tell I, yourself some story <laughs> about it. I don't have, yeah, I've lost all context, yeah. Can you talk for a moment about your writing process, Jane? Because it sounds, you know, frankly terrifying how you... Uh, how you write, you know, how you... Terrifying? Yes, <laughs> you know, uh, that you sit and oh. you wait. <laughs> Those good old days, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, um, I like to get the nuts and bolts organized because I think the writing is this process and, you know, Flannery O'Connor um, has a little book about writing um, which she calls Mystery and Manners and it's, um, it's those two things. Um, it's the the beauty of the unknown harvesting of the subconscious, mm. but it's within, you know, like the manner part of it, you know, a structure. Yes. And so I try to be really clear about how that structure is going to be, and then enter it, and 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 let my subconscious, you know, do, discover itself, do stuff, cause some havoc. Um, but, you know, when you're dealing with a two-hour piece, you're going to get super lost if you just you know, go in with nothing. And what about a six-hour piece? Hmm? You know, a six-hour piece, like Top of the Lake, you know? Yeah, that's well, that's, yeah, it's always like, um, everything about work, like when I start, you know, like the directing, I'm actually really anxious. I go off to workshops, you know, like women's workshops, like oh, how to get centered, you know? <laughs> Same! <laughs> <laughs> because I'm feeling so freaked out in my head, and in all my energy's in my head, and I can't figure out how I could possibly do it. And then I calm down and I go, look, you just do one thing at a time and you write a list. Mm. And <laughs> um, the lists are super important for me. And so I had a really interesting dream um, to do with this project because I did have like just nightly terrors, like just waking up going, God, this is, so, this is so difficult, this is so much to do, how am I going to manage it? And this was like more the directing once I'd written it, but how, because, you know, it's one thing writing and imagining worlds, but when you're going to have to materialise everything yes. you've written, that's an extraordinary challenge. And, you know, for me, how well things are materialised make an incredible difference to how people enter that experience in the world. And I had this uh, dream which... Um, 
don't know, maybe you've heard me say this before, I hope not. <laughs> anyway, I'm uh, on this amazing black horse, you know, and I, I know it's amazing, but I don't know the horse very well. In fact, I barely know it. And um, I'm sort of showing off a little bit and um, taking the horse down this really thin cliff path. And as we go down and we're about to zigzag, um, I suddenly realize that the path is really narrowed to the point where I really can't fit another horse, you know? And I can't, I don't know this horse because it's quite prancy and, you know, I, I don't think I can back it up either. And Nightmare. Uh, yeah. And then you wake up. <laughs> and um, I was speaking to, you'll, you'll see how I consult quite widely, but I was speaking to this woman who deals with dreams. And... Um, she was like, you know, taking me through it, and I suddenly sort of realized, oh, you know, she, she was saying, what do you think the dream's trying to tell you and everything, and you know, about the horse, and I said, well, look, you know, I know about horses, I ride horses, and the thing you have to do is to get your horse to listen to you, mm. to know the horse, and I didn't do that, you know, so all the work you do on the ground with a horse, you know, I think people here that know about horse whispering, all that sort of stuff, like, the touching of the horse, the making sure that it's listening by getting it to bend itself, its neck this way and then the other way, um, is, is a way of creating that relationship with it. And, you know, I, I started to think, oh, that's what I need to do with my film. You know, I, I, I need to get to know every aspect for it. You better hurry up. There's no point, you know, standing on the edge of the cliff. The film um, whispering. And, you know, and just... whispering. Yeah, just, do you understand what I mean? I just start yes. making those lists that I, you know, of how to get to know my, my film is the horse. How do I get to know it and, and to begin, you know, making this real relationship with each other. And that must be enormously satisfying in the sense that you're creating it as well. You know, this is your creation that's taking on its own life, its own momentum. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really exciting and really nerve-wracking. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, when you first direct, you don't really know all the things that can go wrong. <laughs> so there's that, you know... So you're cushioned by your ignorance. Just sort of like, oh, I'm making a film, you know? <laughs> um, that's great. And whereas um, I'm sort of, like, so aware of the things that could go wrong on the day, on the important days, you know, like, just weather, for one thing. Mm -hmm. um, it can really ruin everything, you know, like if, you know, you're depending on a beautiful day to do a scene, you know, how, how many times do you get that, um, you know, a windless day yeah, on yeah, the top yeah. of the hill in Queenstown or whatever. <laughs> and you go, well, what are the, you know, contingencies? And they go, none. <laughs> <laughs> it better work. Yeah. As a writer, why would you get into directing and making films? Like, I can't think of anything worse than... <laughs> allowing all of these other people and variables to be part of your vision, you know, even working with actors, you're, you're known the world over as a director who, you know, can bring forth these extraordinary performances, you know, from Holly Hunter, from the cast in The Power of the Dog, but, you know, I, was it always like that? Did you always have I that? I think if you think about my background growing up with two theatre people, like, my dad was a director, yeah. and my mother really was a good actor. Um, and they loved it. They really, they really believed that art and theatre um, was like the Bible for them. You know, they were re religious about it. And we would make a lot of fun of them about it, actually. 
as, as kids, yeah. you know, and um, discount it. But I really feel really grateful to that gift that they um, gave me of um, thinking about performance and talking about it at the dinner table and, and, and about plays. And, um, you know, both of them were incredibly loyal and generous to other people doing work as well. And they would go to my father, even really old, we could really barely hear anything. I didn't even know if he could understand things. But he would always go to every play that was on in Wellington and then go backstage and congratulate everybody, you know. <laughs> they took it. They took it really um, to heart and seriously. So I think right from the beginning, I was fascinated by performance and they took, they took us on a, a world trip when we were like 16 and to a lot of theater, which, a, a trip that I think split the family up in the end. after my brother and sister and I broke doors down and <laughs> Florence <laughs> trying to fight with each other. But, um, yeah. Uh, I'm getting some context for Sweetie here. <laughs> No, we love each other, really. But, um, Did it ever appeal to you to, to, try to do acting? Act. Yeah, I used to love acting as a kid at school um, and putting on plays and was in a play that actually Dad did at the school called um, um, by Euripides, A Women of Troy, mm. and I played Andromache. Um, and, but the thing about acting, and it is part of this whole mystery that is part of you know, this kind of creative work, I, I remember one day when I was doing Andromache, normally I would you know, be trying to do this and trying to do that, but one day I was sort of a little bit vague and I didn't really want to perform. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was just going through it and it just seemed to happen. And afterwards my parents ran up backstage at school and said, you were amazing. And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about or what I did, I didn't do anything, you know. And it, really unnerved me that, you know, when I was trying, it didn't work. It didn't work, <laughs> yes. And when I wasn't trying, it, something happened, and that sense of lack of control actually scared me, but um, now mm. it's the sort of thing I really try to coach my actors, you know, into that space, like, you know, if they're doing various takes, like quite often an actor will lay out a plan for a performance in, you know, like in the early takes, and it's, you know, it's not delicate, it's quite obvious, like I'm gonna get, I'm gonna shout here, and I'm gonna do this there, and I'm gonna do this more. And then at a certain point I might say to them, okay, so should we drop the plan? And really that just means um, you've laid it out, trust it, it'll come through. You've got but the we structure. Can, we can okay. see the plan, so you, you've gotta let it go. <laughs> That's not working. And you know, that's what it is. It's always this, you know, relationship with trust. I mean, like even coming onto the stage yeah. now, I, I really think, oh, I don't know anything. What am I here for? <laughs> we respectfully Somebody's disagree. Talking, I don't know. Yeah. You know. Um, did that come with time? Did that is that getting easier with time? I mean, I, I watched some um, some interviews at Cannes when the piano went to Cannes with um, Harvey Hotel and, and Holly Hunter and you and both of you from different angles, you and Harvey Keitel, talk about going into that rehearsal process, you know, and at the time, he's this American actor, you know, this, he was in the Marines, I think, he'd done bad He lieutenant. was in the Marines, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, you are, you know, you said you didn't make the piano until you were ready to make the piano, but it's still a massive sort of milestone yeah. in your work. Well, it was really different because, 
you know, when you, I mean, before then I'd made Angel at my table and Sweetie, um, but was working like with buddies, you know. <laughs> if they were incredibly patient and sweet and there's an absolute sort of law in directing actors where you never tell them how to say something. I broke that law like so many times, you know. <laughs> because it was just like, oh, we've got to get this done, you know? Mm. Hey, can you say it like this? <laughs> and, uh, when I knew I was working with Holly and Sam and Harvey, I, I, just, I, I just knew I had to change, you know, gear up. I couldn't do that. That would just, like, be instant death to me and them. So I had to really uh, figure out a way to work differently. Um, and I think... All three of those actors taught me, you know, how to uh, run rehearsals. Um, Harvey was particularly um, helpful with it because he, he comes from the method and he takes acting incredibly seriously and he just taught me some amazing um, lessons, you know, watching him prepare for different scenes in the piano and one of them in particular um, when uh, Ada is um, playing and he's getting up the courage to touch her mm. for the first time. And, you know, I was a bit of a taskmaster. I'd say, okay, we've got uh, 15 minutes for this. No dialogue, you know. <laughs> Here we go. Um, and Harvey would just ignore that. And so Holly was you know, playing the piano with her back to him. And um, Harvey was just sitting there. And, you know, you don't go to Harvey and say, hurry up. Because mm. <laughs> we've got other scenes to do today. So Holly and I were a bit like, um, mm. what, what, what to do? And um, How long are we talking now? We're talking we? like first 15 minutes of just <laughs> sitting there like nothing. And then, the, you know, the tension built. And then she, Holly called me over and she said, what's the matter? Isn't he attracted to me? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, oh, I don't think it's, uh, I think he's rehearsing. So let's, just, let's just trust him and see what happens. And, you know, Harvey was just sitting there looking at his hands, looking at, you know, nails. Yeah. And, and so we sat back down and she just kept playing the same pieces. And then the tension in the room was just so extreme. And finally stood up. And I was like, ah! <laughs> and he just slowly walked over and he just, you know... Put his hand on the back of her neck, and I just—I was so focused on it, and I just learnt at that moment that obviously when we did the scene, we would do it in two minutes, you know, three minutes. Mm. But to have that experience in the in the rehearsal room of understanding for him to understand what what it was for the Baines character to think about it and to feel it, you know, and to let that play out so that you have that body memory later for when you actually, you know, are going to do that on set is extremely, um, it's gold. It's mm. extremely valuable because it feels like a truth that you've... Yes, an embodied truth. Embodied truth that you've yeah. discovered through, you know, work in rehearsal room. And I think that is the power of work in rehearsal room. And as I've um, worked further and... and on, I, I very rarely actually rehearse scenes the way I used to. Like I 
would often, well, often now never rehearse scenes we're actually doing, but we do a lot of improvisation on um, finding out relationships that got us to where we are in the story and what we're going to take off from. Um, so that there's a sort of openness about the scene that we're going to be actually recording on the day. Because the power of the dog cast have talked about all sorts of things, you know, dancing and yeah. Cody Smith-McPhee was hula hooping, I think, which has ended up in the film. Yeah, it just happened to be a hula hoop in the rehearsal. <laughs> room, but, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. I think when that's, you know, what I would tend to do is to like, what I did in that film was to rehearse the scenes that I was insecure about, like and one of them was um, the scene where... Um, Cody comes in and, you know, Benedict or Phil is um, just blown up um, with his brother about um, Rose's drunkenness and her um, giving away his hides and um, he's going to offer the poison rope, you know, to, to Phil. And um, in the book, you know, it's so beautifully written, but I had a lot of suspicions that you know, we weren't going to be able to pull that off the same way um, when we dramatised it, as yes. he could write it, as he could extend it, as he could, you know, like, layer every moment in with language. And um, I actually worked with a choreographer on that. We were struggling in the rehearsal room, so, I, you know, I went like, guys, I think we should try this and see if we can make this moment work. And we tried a lot of different things, and both Benedict and uh, Cody are super patient and super, like, you know, interested in those problems. And then at a certain point, I asked the choreographer if he could um, have a look at the scene and see what he thought. And um, he was so beautiful. He said, um, you know, there's something that I think maybe you should try. I know it's not in the scene, but um, it's something that I think is very touching about... Um, you know, men, like the, the idea of a hand around someone's neck. Um, it's like what you do when you're about to kiss someone. And I think that could work, that could be helpful, that could be important. And um, uh, we, we started to work with that idea and, you know, it was the, the little coda that you could see just a little bit more than um, just him taking the, the glove off. Yes. Um, and to give the rope or to, um, so, yeah, we, uh, we, we, we used that and, and that was super helpful. Mm. So much of those images I'm thinking as you're speaking from your films happen in the body, you mm. know, the moment of Bane's touching Ada through the tiny hole in her stockings. <laughs> yeah. You know, or, or even in an angel at my table, the curve of mm. Janet Frame's legs as she's getting electroshock therapy. You know, these are powerful yeah, we can't, images. I can't really claim any responsibility for that. That's just Terry's great legs. But <laughs> she does have great legs. <laughs> but, you know, I think we use all our experience and all our memories, um, you know, as directors, things that we've experienced or we're moved by, uh, you know, and, and haven't forgotten especially in the sort of pseudo-erotic area, like the idea of um, Baines putting his finger in the, on that little hole of skin, which 
Um, it comes actually from when I was about seven or eight in um, no, primary school, mm -hmm. having a super erotic experience. <laughs> 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 no, but what they did was we had like a day when um, you could bring in the show and tell, you know? Yes, yeah. And I brought in a, a little um, doll that my dad had brought back from Japan whose clothes could come off. Um, well, I made sure they could come off by the time I <laughs> yanked them off. Cause <laughs> but anyway, I, the doll was so beautiful and exquisite, and um, the teacher said, so shall we hand it round, you know? And I was like, but then I said, okay, you know, and then the doll started to get handed round, and I could, was watching everybody touch it, mm. and like, the, the delicacy with which what most people, you know, touch the hair and the little hands and the little cheeks and the feet. I was just like absolutely in another world. It was sort of transfixing. I mean, I, you know, having an orgasm or anything, but it was, it was focusing me in, in, in a way. And I think, you know, for me, I think the erotic is all about paying attention mm -hmm. and paying attention in, you know, a very different way than normal. I mean, and that was like, you know, in a way, my experience of it. So just like for Baines to pay attention to that little piece of flesh that he could see through the stocking, I guess I, I, th I thought that might carry that same eroticism. Yes. Yeah. And opening up a moment that suddenly Yeah, and, and the same endless. with the scarf, you know? Yes. It's the same bit with the scarf that objects can really... Um, carry the, you know, sort of chi field in a way of that, um, mm. you know, especially they belong to someone important and, you know, as I was saying to Ben, Ben, where do you think he, um, Phil would keep the scarf? Like, I was imagining he'd keep it in his, you know, next to his heart and he said, down his pants. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Real powerful male energy there. <laughs> Thank you for your sex scenes, for so many of your sex scenes, which are so life-affirming. I don't think I've ever seen an impromptu sort of act of oral sex being given to a woman in a pub toilet in the South Island of New Zealand on screen <laughs> in the same way, you know, as, as I saw that scene in Top of the Lake, you know, which is just extraordinary, you know, and, and thank you on behalf of a lot of cishet women of my generation, I think, for In the Cut. You know, mm. and for those scenes. Well, we have to thank, thank Susanna Moore for that. Yeah. She's the sexiest lady. And even as um, she's quite a senior now, um, she's still as perky and interested in everything of that nature as possible. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> if you, um, you can buy her book, which I really recommend. Um, it's called Miss Alunium. Alumium. Aluminum. Miss Aluminum. Um, and it's all about her adventures in Hollywood. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And her love affairs there before, you know, she went to New York. Um, it's, it's a memoir. Mm. Yeah, excellent, amazing. I, I saw a lot of Susanna when I was in New York. Did you? Yeah. It yeah. feels like, like a very um, positive and sort of, um, you know, necessary energetic corrective, you know, that experience of desire and fulfillment, like sexual fulfillment by women in a lot of your films and, and series, you yeah. know, a counterpoint to the, you know, the brutalization 
in, you, you know, if you look at Ada's character in the piano or Robin in Top of the Lake, you know, women are shown, you know, as being on the receiving end of, of largely male violence, but also experiencing their own desires and, and being fulfilled. I, yeah, I think, you know, when you think about film, which so many people, so many of us love, um, and how it's really being created out of the male imagination, um, so much of it, because there just basically are only male directors, or have been. Mm. Um, and when people ask me, you know, where I get my inspiration from, you know, that's why I sort of go back to novels, because it's, it's from those bad-behaved women. Um, the Bronte sisters, you know, mm. was especially Emily Bronte. Um, created Wuthering Heights, you know, here's a woman who never probably had a sexual relationship, never got married, um, but created what would be one of the sexiest characters mm. ever out of Heathcliff. Yes, brooding. Yeah, sexy I mean, yeah. What, what would she know about all that, you know? Well, she made it it's up. It's very instinctive. Yes, she made it up out of her imagination. But I, I guess I relate to that. And, you know, um, was very much my idea with the piano to explore um, or to, to bring a female um, desire mm. um, through Ada, through it being awakened by, you know, Baines and the piano lessons. Um, out into the open and actually, you know, to see, um, you know, women wanting sex, you know, like women, women feeling erotic, women having, um, I mean, I, f I think it's so important actually because when you feel your sex life or your sexuality is owned by men and as much as if no man is desiring you, 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 you don't have a right to, to have a sex it. life, or, yeah. you know? or to feel sexual. Um, and, you know, like, I just yeah. think that we need to claim it back. <laughs> yes, yes, I will clap for that. And I like uh, and appreciate how much it is, again, you know, embodied rather than stated in the piano. You know, there's that scene where she kisses herself in the mirror and, yeah. you know, obviously she's Ada, so she doesn't speak, you know, yeah. it's not, and it's not really, you know, you can see what's happening, you can mm. see what's awakening, but again, yeah. it's physical, you know, it's a kiss. I know, I, I mean, like, if you are around teenage girls, um, they go through this period where, like, like mirror-itis, you know, where they just <laughs> spend all their time looking well, it's selfies now, isn't it? Yeah. And like so, face tune. Yeah, looking at the mirror at themselves or the image and, you know, trying to, um, you know, bring it into alignment with whatever's going on in the current moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know. But not, you know, trying to fit into that, mm. um, that way of being seen without feeling how it is from the inside, you know? Yes, and owning like it. When and you are, it. you know, claiming your own um, desire, your own sexiness, your own sexuality, there is, there is a way in which it's, you know, like you can, when you decide to share it, you know, it's much more empowered, it's much sexier yeah. than like, oh, I hope I'm like what you imagined. <laughs> yeah. 
It's very strange to rewatch In the Cut now and think about how controversial it was, you know, how... It was really, really, um, yeah, didn't and go down well. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, you, you'd be familiar, that interview Meg Ryan gave recently where she talked about the sort of impact on her career and on how she felt about herself as an actress afterwards. Mm. You know, that now with that, with the distance of time, that feels shocking. You know, were you... I don't know why we didn't see it coming. I guess we were on our own little, um, you know, cohort. And, um, but really, um, I think it was very challenging. You know, like, almost all the reviewers are male of film. And, um, you know, sort of like the Corduroy Club. And um, the idea of women um, being so empowered as they were and in the cut and discussing what they found attractive, what they didn't, and you know, all of that kind of thing. I, th I think it was really, um, yeah, it was challenging for them mm. in ways. It was just too much. And you know, like say, like Brightstar, you know, I thought, oh, this is gonna be easy for the, in the review department, because here we have um, a beautiful woman looking after a sick yes. man, you know? <laughs> and sure enough, you know? It's, it's as literal as that, you know, like that they felt that they felt that the, that the woman was available to them, you know? Mm. I, I think in, in a way. But I guess, you know, you have to look at the whole system as well, don't you? Like the system, I mean, you know the system you're working it. it, it, it I watched, I went back and watched the Oscars from 1994 when you won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay and Anna Paquin won an Oscar and Holly Hunter won an Oscar and you know the moment when Holly Hunter's name is called for Best Actress there's the camera is on her and she gets up and and you know right behind her filling the frame is Harvey Weinstein you know cheering and it, it's you know it's shocking to watch now it's almost like a monster in a family photograph <laughs> you know it's like what that guy no <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, he, he did distribute the film in America. And, and did an amazing job at doing did a, that. He did, um, you know, it has to be said, well, can be said that he changed everything for art cinema. You know, he made it mainstream. Hmm. Uh, and that's more, that's a lot to say, but, um, yeah. But I guess he, that's the environment, you know, that was the, that's the period you're working in, so maybe these you know, reviews for women appreciating I mean, you know, their sexuality weren't, were never going to, you know, You know, I've experienced, you know, many sides of Harvey Weinstein, but not the bedroom side. And, um, you know, I've, I've experienced him being really aggressive um, because he didn't like Holy Smoke. He didn't think it was going to be commercially successful. In fact, it wasn't, and he made sure it wasn't. Um, just like, it's like a shark attack. Um, and, you know, not pleasant, but I remember saying, like, Harvey, why are you yelling like this? It's really not polite, you know? We're trying to have a discussion, and you're just screaming down the phone, you know? And you go, But, I mean, you know, I felt fairly sure that, um, you know, if he said, oh, we're not going to promote the film, there was just no chance of it doing well. And that's more or less what happened with Holy Smoke. I mean, maybe the film wouldn't do any well, very well anyway, but he was super aggressive. Um, and he was, you know, sometimes super aggressive, like in the interests of art cinema. 
and also super aggressive in, you know, hurting women and um, compulsively, it seems, yeah. And, and, you know, we see this now in plain sight, but it's, I imagine, it's different to, to live through that. But what we're talking about is power, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, abuse of power, yeah. Um. Yeah, and, you know, I, I talked about you as the first because you're a trailblazer, you are the first, and the only as well, you know, because of that system, mm. right? You know, it's not because women... I imagine aren't very good directors. <laughs> I think it's a very exciting time, though. You know, since um, hashtag Me Too, um, I, I really sat up. I really felt there was a difference in the air. You know, and it's not just about um, outing a lot of um, abusive, sexually abusive men. Um, it's also about the change in audience and the number of female-led television shows mm. um, and film as well that um, audiences are loving. And, you know, it has to be said, no one is going to look after the women in cinema. But when the women are making things that people want to see and they want to see it more than, you know, like, a, you know, another... Um, or whatever the guy's making, <laughs> when they're choosing to see more complicated stories um, led by women about women, you know, it's, it's a real game changer because the, also the advertisers take notice and um, they don't want, like, Fox, you know, the Fox News abusers, that's how they got rid of them, they didn't want their products advertised um, in a way that their, their women buyers were... Um, they care about them. So it, it really is about the money and things have changed because, you know, women are making stuff that people want to see. And, and is they're that paying for it. And you, if you look really yeah. even more locally, you know, um, Chloe Zhao yeah. won, like, everything um, the year before me. We did pretty well with The Power of the Dog. And, pretty um, well. And, you know, <laughs> and also um, Venice was won by um, Ava DuVernay with... Um, the Happening, which is an yeah. amazing film about abortion, and um, Julia Ducanel won Can with Titan. So women are like kicking shit, you know, like really are showing up as amazing filmmakers. And <laughs> you know, there was a time when people started to say to me, oh, it's so bad how, you know, ignore women are. Maybe we'll give a, you know, best film by a woman. Um, Your own I'm not kidding. category. Yeah, and, you know, I said, uh, no, you know, this is not what we want. We can compete um, on any floor with anybody in the arts, you know, just give us a chance, you know. And, it, yeah, and it's broader than that even. Like, it's, it isn't just about sort of parity, like even white women having parity with white men, you know, like, progress is, is having that plurality of voices, isn't it? You mean like diversity of progress? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, that is, I think, what makes the world, you know, more beautiful, more interesting. Mm. And we get so many more diverse points of view. And, you know, it, it's also to be said that, you know, there are artists, you know, from every ethnic background that really connect and communicate and you know we don't have to have the white male um, mm. just um, 
dominating everything. A bit of love for that. A winning comment, okay. <laughs> but I guess that was that was part of the deliciousness of the power of the dog as well, to see you come in and, you know, queer this very masculine sort of butch pitch, you know, this this sort of history, not only of the frontier and of the cowboy, but of the director, you know, mm. of the of the auteur, of the, you know, the, these ideas, these very masculine ideas of who's in charge, you know, who's who's mm. running this. Yeah, I think the person that knows that knows the most about it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> is the person to run it. And um, person that stood up for it, you know. Mm. Um, Why do you think it was you that ended up making it? Power you, of the dog. Yeah, you know, after five goals at option. I mean, what happened when you met? I that think producer? I wrote a good script, to be honest. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, you know, I know that in some ways because Roger Frappier's friend tried to write a script, and Roger went like. Oh my God, your script is freaking masterful, you know. Like, <laughs> like I tried myself and I know how hard it is and, you know, okay, well, that was just one guy. But, you know, the script is the thing that goes out first of all. We have to attract the actors with it and we're also um, raising finance with it. So, I, I, you know, I think that, that... And also, as I said, I leant very he heavily on Tanya Segechi and, you know, a lot of phone calls. What do you think about scene five, you know? Mm. <laughs> Um, I really do love that connection and not being isolated by myself and having a, like a partnership as I go through and I've got other producers as well, Emil Sherman and Ian Canning who are really experienced readers of scripts. But just one hint to everybody that likes to read scripts is like try to not get people to give you notes by committee. Um, the the, the we think, you know. Mm. Um, there's no such thing as we think. Just to go back to the money, yeah. you know, to the financing side of it. I'm interested in that. Are you always part of... I'm remembering a story you told on a panel somewhere about um, trying to get finance for Sweetie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> you can tell it, you know, with those Australians. Yeah. Well, that was the very first time I was involved in financing and um, John Maynard, who was one of the producers on that project, said... Look, we've got some strange people that are slightly interested, you know, maybe they're a little shonky or whatever, but um, I want you to go down to Melbourne and meet them, you know, they've read the script. And when he said shonky, I think they, you know, they are like maybe trying to get money, tax money out of the film. That's about <laughs> right. it. And when I went down to meet them, um, I, they called me into their office and they sat down and they said, I, we hear this is supposed to be funny. Um, <laughs> We didn't find anything funny in it. <laughs> um, what's, the, what's the story anyway? <laughs> I was thinking, oh, this is going to be hopeless. Okay. So I started telling them the story, and I could see them like getting really bored. And, and so I just went, and that's the end, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and they, I think they were so grateful. And then someone came in, um, that didn't go on any longer, and then someone came in and said, oh, your office chairs have arrived. Right. And, and they said, oh, okay, just excuse us. Um, <laughs> actually, you can join in. We're, <laughs> we're going to work out which are the most comfortable chairs. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, this is the lost cause, I might as well, you know, join in. So we all sat on the chairs and tried to decide. <laughs> 
which were the best ones. And then after a little bit of that, one of the guys called the other one off into the room. And I went, oh, what's happening now? <laughs> and he came back and they both came back and they said, we're going to fund your film. <laughs> I said, are you sure? <laughs> um, what about how you haven't read it? <laughs> But you've Is got a good eye for an office chair. That's enough for us. Yeah, that's right. I thought, well, you helped us with the chairs, you know. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't very expensive, but they, it seemed to be they really wanted to see me drop dead in front of them, you know, like, oh, thank you, thank you. And I did, you know, a little bit of that. Like, I, I really couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> and then when the film was made, um, they came to watch it. And um, we were going like, you know, they were really nervous about having to sit through a whole film. <laughs> they wanted the lights left on, they wanted champagne at the back. <laughs> How long is it? And when the film finished, they said, oh yeah, yes, okay. <laughs> um, well, you know what, we could sell this to America and they could do a remake. <laughs> Would the remake still involve like a naked woman in her treehouse refusing to come down and sort yeah, of I think, dying? I think they might have slept through that bit. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, that didn't happen. The film went to Cannes and they yeah. went there too and they were expecting, you know, they wouldn't know what to expect, I guess, but not quite what happened, you know, which was a mixture of cheers and booze, you know. And um, I think they were sort of like wondering how to enjoy this moment properly. <laughs> Where's my champagne? <laughs> Does Cannes feel like a, a home for you as a filmmaker? Um, well, yeah, I know, I know the presidents can pretty well over the time, um, and they are really um, incredibly supportive, and I've been the president of the shorts jury and the long-form jury mm. um, as well, so you do get to know everybody, and that's quite a privilege to be there when people are um, presenting their film for the first time, no one's seen it, they've never seen it with an audience mm. like this. So it's a very unique and special moment and the French know how to really create a drama around that. And there's a kind of obligatory 10 minute clapping. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that happens no matter what and it's, and it's kind of great because you know, even if this film isn't as maybe as much of a favourite as um, other films people have made, you know, they're there often because of their body of work that they are being applauded. And it's a, you know, it's a sense of really people that love cinema and in France they really, mm. really do. And, um, you know, like, I'm really treated almost like a rock star in, in you France. You are, you're a rock in, star in France. In yeah. <laughs> You and David Lynch. I mean, there's a, a, there's Leon, a incredible you know, photo. Yeah, it's really, it was really full on. It was hard to handle. Like, Jane, Jane, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the New Zealand um, bashfulness, like, oh my God, am I going to get arrested? You know? <laughs> or a little bit more. Show, am I showing off here? Or are they just not going to know what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and as much as you think, oh, is this too much? Yes, it's a bit much. But, you know, for artists, it's so beautiful when people have your back. You know, like, you need feedback and criticism, but you can't survive without people having your back. Um, you can't be bold and you can't be brave without that because, you know, you are, you're human and um, it's, it's hard to 
hold your space, you know, if you're getting a lot of shit, you know. Um, and <laughs> so I think, you know, things like the Writers' Week that we're holding here, I mean, that's why I want to be here to share practice with other writers and, and you know, and some insights with the public of, you know, what, um, what it's like to be in this world and it's um, the joys and the challenges of it. And, you know, you people, by coming here tonight, you have my back, you know, you have other writers' backs that you've come in to support, and it really, really um, means something, so thank you. Yeah. No, Dame Jane Campion, thank you. Thank you so much. I've never been so personally devastated to say we're out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you will be signing uh, Michelle Simon's book, Jane Campion and Jane Campion, at the front. Um, and I just want to thank you again for your time and your generosity in answering these questions. Noirira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Dame Jane Campion. Tēnākwe. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.